you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 45 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. And myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, I really enjoyed the interview last week with Andrea Carter. Listeners will recall she gave up the practicalities of law both as a solicitor and a barrister to become a full-time writer with her series of novels about solicitor-turned-super-sleuth Benedicta O'Keefe or Ben O'Keefe. Fantastic interview. Yeah, she's really interesting. And she had a great backstory. She moved from the Midlands up to Inish Owen and practised as a solicitor in Carndunna. I think it was you who said, next stop, Iceland. Mm. And then came to Dublin and practised as a barrister and now has become a superb novelist. Yeah, and very successful. And her Mm. most recent book is Death Rights, I believe. That's right. And the original one was Death at Whitewater Church. That's right. And And we're giving been about five between the two. Five, yeah. yeah. So fair play to her. We're giving a huge recommendation. Excellent work and uh, love that interview. Okay, well today, Mark, myself and your good self are going to engage in a little bit of navel gazing as we welcome to the studio Neve Howland, Associate Professor of Law at UCD, who is just about to publish her book on the history of barristers in Ireland. I think this is going to be a publishing sensation, Mark. I mean, surely they'll be <laughs> queuing around the corners. Barristers, yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter-esque, will it yeah. be? No, I'm really looking forward to this interview. We've had a sneak preview. She has put in a big shift researching this book, yeah. hasn't she? Mm. You were commenting on the number of footnotes. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, and interviewed a huge number of barristers and yeah, it's really put the legwork. You know, no, it's really yeah. good. So really looking forward to this interview. Okay, Mark, so let's go to some cases from the Decisis website. Our first case today is a very interesting case which made headlines recently. This concerned a school principal who had been suspended from his position as principal of a newly founded Gale school in Gorey County, Wexford in 2009. It's a case of on board Banistiecta and another versus the Labour Court. And this is a decision of Mr. Justice Cregan. Yeah, well, there, in fact, there's two judgments here, which I think it's just interesting to see the two of them. What is extraordinary about this case is that the disciplinary process started back in 2009 following a what they described as a single child incident. That was clearly an incident and there was a complaint against this particular school principal. He had been the founding principal of the school. It was a Gale school that had been founded on non-denominational lines. So, you know, very forward-thinking, modern Gale school. And the matter went through the, well, I suppose, what was then the Employment Appeals Tribunal, what's now the Workplace Relations Commission. And eventually it came as far as the High Court, where the school basically complained that the Labour Court had made the wrong decision in saying that he had been wrongfully dismissed. And the Board of Management Disciplinary Panel had been motivated by animus. And, and had, a vendetta. Yeah, well, that came into the second judgment. So first of all, they found that he'd been wrongfully dismissed. And then the, the, what they had to decide then was what the implications were. And because he'd been suspended since 2009, another school principal was already in place who was running the school And so they had to determine, well, what happens? Do they replace the principal who's been in place for so long? And Mr. Justice Cregan said, yes, because the Board of Management had been motivated by a vendetta that clearly everything had been done wrong, effectively. He said that the principal had to be reinstated. So it is now a school with 
two principles. Two principles was uh, so like the two popes all those years ago back in Avignon. Difficult to know what consequences can arise from that, but um, that's what's okay. being determined. In this case. is a very serious case, mm. and I mean, obviously, two thousand and nine. It took a long time before kind of mm. a conclusion was reached in this case in the High Court. There is a suggestion that this decision is being appealed. You would wonder how many appeals can be gone through. I mean, is what Mr. Justice Cregan said here is the Board of Management has had three bites of the cherry at the WRC, the Labour Court and the High Court. It has failed in all three, resulting in significant cost for the school. And then it says it now wishes to have a fourth bite of the cherry. I have no doubt at all that the Board of Management's case can be properly characterised as a vendetta. Okay. I mean, it's extraordinary language. And he awarded mm. costs to he, the principal did, in, in, concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that, that kind of covers two cases yeah. today. Yeah. Let's go. Our final case is a European arrest warrant case. And this concerned a prisoner who was due to be released at the end of a life sentence. But he was then arrested under a European arrest warrant for surrender to Portugal in relation to a conviction in abstentia back in 2009, while he was already in Mount Joy. This is the case of the Minister for Equality versus Wade, and it's a decision in the High Court of Mr. Justice Carita Naidu. Yeah. So the sequence here is interesting. This particular offender was serving a life sentence for a murder that had been carried out in 2005. He was convicted in 2007. So he had a life sentence ahead of him. In 2009, he is served with notice of not, in fact, a murder charge, but an aggravated burglary charge in Portugal. And he does nothing about it, presumably thinking, I have more things to worry about at this stage. Fast forward 13 years to when he is either about to be released or certainly releases is not that far off. And he is arrested under a European arrest warrant for surrender to Portugal, where he was convicted in absentia back in 2009 on the charge of aggravated burglary. And so the question... Sorry, I incorrectly said murder. Mm. So what Mr. Justice Naidu had to decide was, was there anything unfair? And was there any reason not to surrender him to Portugal? And although trials in absentia are extremely rare in Ireland, they are a reasonably common feature of the civil law system. And under the European arrest warrant regime, providing that you have had adequate notice of the trial... A trial in absentia is not of itself considered okay. to be unfair. I'm so, thinking of Ian Bailey, actually, in France. Wasn't mm-hmm. there a full trial for murder for him in Paris? And obviously he was mm-hmm. in absentia. He didn't go to France. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think in this particular case, the issue was that if the person in this case had um, instructed a legal team either in Ireland or in Portugal back in 2009, he would have been in a position to engage with the trial. But the fact was he was on notice of the trial and he didn't participate in any respect. And so he had to face the consequences. So having completed his sentence in Ireland, he now has to face another, I think it's two years and four months imprisonment in Portugal. Okay. All right. Very well explained. Uh, We're going to be back shortly with Associate Professor Neve Howland. Silence in the Fifth Court. Okay, I am delighted to welcome to the studio Neve Howland, who's an associate professor of law at UCD. But you're in here wearing a different hat, Neve. You are an author, and your book called Barristers in Ireland: An Evolving Profession Since 1921 is due to come out on the 12th of this month. So thank you so much for coming in and talking to us about it and giving everybody a sneak preview. This is very exciting for myself and Mark's point of view, a history of the barrister's profession in Ireland, Mark. Yeah, the profession that's unwilling to change. Yeah, well, I'm sure there must be a car chase on every page. Okay, Neve, will you tell us, tell us about the book and why you decided to write this book? 
First of all, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and um, I've listened to many episodes of the podcast, so it's lovely to be uh, here to see where it all happens. Thank you. Thank you very much. So originally I was approached by um, James O'Reilly SC, who's on the Library Committee of the King's Inns, and he said that there was an interest in having a 20th century history of the bar written. Now, we have some fantastic scholarship already on the history of the King's Inns. Colm Kenny has written a lot on that. And people like Dara Hogan have written about the history of barristers and solicitors up until the 1920s. So the idea with this book is to pick up the thread in the 20s and bring it right up to the end of the 20th century. So 1921 is the start date. That was the first time we had women called to the bar. And it was the first call date since partition. So it was a time of a a lot of change. And then the end date is the end of the 1990s, which was also a time of change in terms of the composition of the bar. So there were a lot more women at that stage. Uh, Technology had changed at the bar, practice areas, the physical infrastructure of the law library. So that was a time of a lot of change as well. So those bookend the project. And I noticed on the front cover of the book, you have two of the early women barristers, Avril Deverell, Mark spotted her from a a country mile straight away. And uh, the other, her colleague, I can't remember. That's Francis Kyle. Francis Kyle, that's it. And why did you put the two women on the front of the book? Well, they were the first two women called to the bar in Ireland. And in fact, the first women called to the bar anywhere Um, uh, in England, Ireland and and Wales at that time. And the cover image is actually from a portrait that was commissioned by the Bar Council and the King's Inns a couple of years ago and which now hangs proudly in the King's Inns. And it was done by an artist called Emma Stroud. And it's part of the Bar Council and the King's Inns In Plain Sight campaign, which is an initiative to get more pictures of women lawyers and women judges on the walls of the King's Inns. Okay, fantastic. And so your starting point really is the foundation of the state and how the law library moved into the new state. And was that an easy move or did some of them still believe that they were beholden to a parliament all the way across in the UK, in Westminster? Or were they able to happily make their peace with the free state and develop accordingly? I would say that the bar were fairly adaptable in the 1920s. There was a huge amount of change at the time. And I'm sure there were a multiplicity of opinions about the way things were going. But generally, as a whole, as a profession, the bar went with it. And we see members of the bar being really involved in creating the architecture of the new state. You know, they were drafting the constitution. They were drafting the Courts of Justice Act. They were populating the bench. They were in the civil service. They were they were everywhere. So I would say that the bar really embraced the new legal order. Can I go back just even a little bit before independence? Because I think what's fascinating, and you cover it a little bit in your book, is the dull courts, which I don't know. I mean, we could obviously do an entire episode on this. But basically, during the War of Independence, an entire parallel court system was set up, particularly outside of Dublin, which which had barristers kind of organising it. And yet the Bar of Ireland determined that it was professional misconduct for a barrister to appear before one of these courts. But it was quite a sophisticated court system, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, there were some barristers involved in litigation in the Dole Courts. And then when the Dole Courts were put on a more official footing, I suppose, members of the, the Dole Supreme Court and the Dole Circuit Court were drawn from members of the bar. So I suppose the opinions of, of members of the legal profession definitely varied in relation to these courts. And yet once the Free State came into being, by and large, the profession managed to come back together again and 
respect the newly established courts. I mean, the anti-treaty side didn't keep dull courts or, or an equivalent going for any length of time, did they? Yeah, I would say that from um, from the time of the, the Courts Act 1924, everything ran very, very smoothly. Which was quite an achievement of following a, a bitter civil war. It was remarkable, yeah. Okay, so so let's let's talk about how the the profession sort of evolved then in in the free state. Like it was compact and bijou, really, wasn't it? There wasn't too many barristers in those days. It was quite nice if you were part of the circle. You were kind of doing okay, weren't you? Yeah, I think compact and bijou was a lovely description. Uh, actually, I wish I had thought of that uh, when I was writing. It was a small bar at the outset, and people tended to come from very similar backgrounds at that stage, and and people knew each other, um, so it was cozy. I would say, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And who were the stars of the early bar? Let's go back to the 20s, 30s, 40s. Maybe that's unfair. I'm thinking of Kingsmill Moor and his, you know, fly fishing in the rivers and lakes of Ireland and people like that. I kind of, when I think back, I think people like that were characters. Okay. Let's, let's talk about how it sort of evolved, uh, Neve. So let's, let's, big developments in the bar in terms of the evolution of the bar. When, when, when did things start to change or was there any noticeable change at any stage? What I would say based on, on my own research is that there were always little changes happening. And I think there is just a continual evolution in the bar. And practice changes, practice areas change, the composition of the profession changes. They're not always massive seismic changes, but they're happening all the time. And if we look at the way that the bar operated and the way it was constituted in 1921, it was very different in 1999. But I don't think you can point to one single, you know, major change. But there are certain things here and there. So things like the introduction of legal aid, for example, changed the way that a lot of people practiced. Practice areas in the circuits tended to die out and new practice areas evolved. And the idea of traveling around the circuit together as a group and all staying in the same hotel and having dinners every night changed by the end of the 1990s. Okay. And do you think it has become a profession that reflects the society of Ireland. I mean, if we look at, for example, the guards, you know, once upon a time you had to be over five foot ten or six foot or whatever. And now we have all sizes and shapes reflecting the Irish society in which we live. Is the bar like that? Does it reflect all aspects of Irish society? Do you think it has moved? It's certainly progressed. But do you think that is it is reflective in that regard? Well, I suppose I should preface my remarks by saying, first of all, I'm an outsider because I'm not a barrister. And secondly, I've been looking at this um, through a historical lens. I don't know anything about what happened from 2000. I mean, I joke, but I don't know if I'm qualified to make an authoritative statement. But I will say that the bar certainly seems to be moving in a very positive direction in terms of inclusivity and diversity and representation. Okay, very good. And uh, look, your book is fantastic. As I said, we got a sneak preview. It was a PDF copy. It's not (laughs) like reading the, you have the proper book in front of me now and it looks fantastic. Uh, I noticed one of your chapters is the gendered bar. Why the gendered bar? Well, why not the gendered bar, I suppose, to, to turn it around? So there has been quite a lot of reflection in the last couple of years on the early arrival of women into legal professions. And we've had all the centenaries marked with the solicitor's profession and the barrister's profession and so on. And there's this idea of the famous firsts, first woman at the bar, first woman in the circuit court, first woman on the high court and so on. So whilst I think it's really important to to celebrate all those achievements and to mark them, I wanted to also look at, apart from those amazing, you know, trailblazers, what about the ordinary lived experiences of Everyone else who was at the bar who was a woman. 
So I'm trying to look at what it was like to be a woman at the bar at these various stages. Okay, great. And the chapter I loved, I really loved, I loved, I mean, the book is fantastic. But one chapter I really liked was Taking Silk. (laughs) Mark always says, you know, for our listeners who are lawyers or law students, we have loads of listeners who are non-lawyers and not law students. Taking Silk, what is that? And why was that such a fascinating chapter? (laughs) So when we talk about Taking Silk, we're talking about people being admitted to the inner bar. So becoming a senior counsel or a King's Council, as, as they would have been known in the early 20th century. So I interviewed various people about their experiences at the bar and so on. And I've looked at memoirs and I've also looked at documents that are in the National Archives, in the Attorney General's office papers and so on. And a few very interesting things have come out of all of that. So first of all, it's very clear that the decision whether or not to take silk was a huge decision for a barrister. And that may still be the case today. It was certainly true in the 20th century. And all of the interviewees that I spoke to for the book said that this was something that they really grappled with and they really had to think about it because it was such a risk. So, you know, is it worth getting the better work or the more interesting work and stepping away from what's probably a really successful junior barrister career? Now, for most of the 20th century, the procedures for applying to take silk were not really clear to anybody. It was a bit ad hoc really, wasn't it? It was a bit ad hoc. I mean, even the Attorney General and the Chief Justice often didn't know what was supposed to happen in these situations. So, I mean, there are letters of application in the National Archives that are just one line long. Where someone writes in and says, I would love to take silk. (laughs) Yours sincerely. Think about me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks a million. Yeah. And when the bar was smaller, it would have been easier for the Attorney General and the Chief Justice to know something about the people who were applying to take silk. So it was, you know, it was less necessary maybe to to write out credentials and to, you know, s- submit a, a curriculum vitae. As things progressed, people did start writing slightly more expansive applications. I think it's a lot more extensive now, the application process to take silk. But anyway, Mark. <laughs> um, you talk about the people you interviewed. What, what struck me when from looking at your footnotes, which are extraordinarily extensive, I'd have to say, I loved where every so often you'd, you'd see a quotation and underneath it would say B12 or <laughs> B13. You have a lot of anonymized barristers who clearly spoke very frankly. And in your introduction, you talk about sort of be, being invited around for cups of tea and, and what, what sound like, sounded like some um, conversations hidden away in cafes and that kind of thing. Uh, it, w- w- what kind of people were you speaking to or are, are, you, are you able to expand on that? So this was one of the most enjoyable parts of researching this book because I'm a legal historian and usually I just work with paper. But because this is a slightly more modern history, I got to talk to real people, which was, you know, quite a thrill. So I interviewed 29 people on the basis that their anonymity would be ensured that they could speak frankly. And these were people with different types of practice. So people who had very successful practices, others who had more modest practices at the bar people who worked mostly on circuit, people who worked in Dublin in the superior courts, men, women, different age groups, you know, different practice specialisations and so on. And many of them had had gone on to do other things after the bar, whether that was, you know, being appointed attorney general or um, being appointed to the bench. I think I know who you're talking about now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we had some fantastic conversations. You know, I went to people's houses or I went to their offices or they came to my office and Yes, there were plenty of cups of tea and and coffee and things uh, consumed. I ended up with hours and hours of material, like hundreds and hundreds of pages of transcripts, but obviously it had to be 
selectively edited. And because you were dealing with pre-2000, were you specifically aiming to speak to people kind of in their in their 70s, sort of people who, who were reasonably long in the tooth? Or? Um, well, again, I tried to get a bit of a mix. I don't know if I'd comment on people being long in the tooth. That's it. Sorry, I'm saying nothing. I'm saying nothing. But Peter, you don't look your age. No, not at all. Not at all. So some of them were called as early as the 1950s and some were called in the 90s, just again, to get a broad range of experiences. Because I think someone called in the 60s had a very different experience to someone called in the late 80s or 90s when the numbers at the bar had shot up and so on. Well, in a, in a previous life, we had a wonderful interview with Frank Clark when he was talking about trying to get his hands on that one telephone in the mm. forecourt. So I think there's a few more telephones down there these days. Uh, Neve, the book is brilliant. It really is brilliant. And I mean, all the chapters, I'm just looking at the head, headings of some of the chapters here. Obviously, the law library, and you go into that. Networks at the bar, you know, we'll let, we, we won't go into that. But uh, Barrister's contribution to public life. Now, there's a biggie. Okay, because I often see, let's say somebody's appointed a judge or appointed to a lofty position and, you know, cases that they're involved in are recited and they're very important. But sometimes I wonder how the public perceives that. So tell us, Barrister's contribution to public life. Yeah, thanks. So I suppose apart from, you know, engaging in litigation and working in the courts and maybe being appointed to the bench, I found in researching this book that barristers pop up all areas of public life. They pop up as, you know, broadcasters, journalists and commentators. They're politicians, elected representatives. They're in government departments. They're, you know, civil servants, you know, working in in embassies and so on. And my attempt here is to just capture the range of different experiences or the range of different areas where barristers have a, a public voice or a public contribution to make. I'd be doubtful whether whether there's another profession that has been so involved in Irish history over the last, you know, century or so. And I would say that the bar has, I suppose, as a consequence of having representatives and members in all of these fields, I think the bar has been very influential on public life and the development of public policy um, and and foreign affairs um, over the last while. And in terms of, let's say, certain positions that are within the realm of the bar, obviously the Attorney General the Attorney General has always been a barrister. It doesn't have to be a barrister, but it has always been a barrister. Yeah, all our attorneys, Attorney Generals have been members of the bar and have been traditionally seen as the, the leader of the bar. I had some interesting chats with former Attorney Generals in the course of the, the research for this book and any that I spoke to said that they had very much enjoyed that experience um, and had found, you know, sitting at the cabinet table and so on to be just quite a refreshing change from, you know, practising at the bar. I mean, a lot of barristers have gone on to become Taoiseach, isn't that right, Mark? I'm just trying to think over the years, wasn't there? You know, Johnny Costello going back to him, yeah. Charlie yeah. Hawhey was a barrister. I think John you know, Bruton was... Did, did he do he the bar? Did he once upon a time? Yeah. But anyway, about, yeah. so they, they, they have, mm. they've always stuck their noses into various different mm. other areas, I agree with Geneve, and sometimes have made a, a very important contribution, Certainly. it has to be said. Okay, perceptions of the profession, that's another chapter that you've written. You know, how is the bar perceived by people outside of the profession? One thing that I found in researching this was that up until a certain point, barristers do seem to have been held in quite high regard in Irish society. And that's probably part of a wider deference for authority and a deference towards, you know, professionals in general. So people respected the guardie, the priest, the doctor, the lawyer and so on. I think from the research and from speaking to people in practice, 
there probably was a turning point in the 1990s when public perceptions of barristers took, I suppose, a, a bit of a dip. And I think that would have been around the time of the tribunals. Of course, yes. When there would have been, you know, news reports about very high earning individuals and so on, which weren't necessarily representative of, of the profession as a whole. The idea of, of how the public view barristers was something that came up in conversations a lot. And I found that the people I interviewed were very conscious of how they were viewed by the public. And one thing that a, a couple of people said was that people don't always regard the bar very highly until they need to engage the services of a barrister. And then they see the work that we do and then they respect and, you know, hold us in high esteem, which I thought was quite interesting. Okay, and but but there is that desire to be loved. Is that is that, is that <laughs> does that exist? It's show business in one way, isn't it? I suppose it is, and it's such a performative profession. You know, people are so publicly exercising their work, and and you know they're on view when they're in court, in the way that a surgeon is not on view when he, he or she is performing surgery. So yes, yes, so it is. It, there is huge public display. Mark, sorry, I'm banging on here. Just to continue with that, in terms of, let's say, characters at the bar, now I appreciate you went from the 1920s up onto the 1990s. I mean, the public perception I would have thought is that you have barristers are wonderful orators and they have this notion where people go in and command the court and it's very dramatic and Shakespearean language and all that sort of stuff. Is that changing a little bit? Uh, do we have those kind of table thumping people still? Or is it now kind of, you know, keyboard warriors who are putting in these long submissions? I wonder. Well, you know, a few people that I interviewed did did make this point that the that the growth in, in written submissions has had a massive impact on the way that barristers, you know, carry out their work and on the performative aspects of that. In terms of, you know, being the loud orator and so on. But if we were talking about <laughs> someone like that. Daniel O'Connell, he wouldn't really have worked if he was kind of <laughs> handing over a sheaf with 20 sheets in it, you know, and, uh, you know, a 10,000 word submission. That wouldn't have really inspired the public to the same extent. Mark, what yeah. do you think? Well, I think the performance before a jury is obviously a, a, a very important part of the barrister's skill set. And I think people like Daniel O'Connell, you know, whose work before a jury is was so key to what they did, that it makes such a difference. You know, you're, you're never going to be handing your lit, written submissions into a jury. You need to properly tug at both the mind and the heart when you're doing that kind of work. OK, and just, just to, to kind of contemporary issues that you might have touched on in your research, Neve. I mean, you know, the bar is very much kind of focused on the fact that barristers should remain as sole traders and not come together and join with chambers. From your research, from especially from barristers who've seen it all, been there, done that, what do you think? Would they view the way we do it here as the best way to do it? Or what do they think about chambers, like our friends across the, the channel, or the RC, I should say? I think overall, there is quite an attachment to, to the way things are done. I think there is an attachment to the communal law library with the, with the sole traders and this idea that you can you know, as a junior member of the bar, you can rub shoulders with the most senior person. You can ask them for advice and so on. Um, and certainly some of those who are interviewed lamented the demise of, you know, the one communal law library space. And, yeah. you know, even though all the fantastic new facilities that were built in the 1990s were very much needed at that point, there is a sense that maybe the library lost something in that. Certainly at different points from the 70s onwards, there were individuals who wanted to come together, who wanted to set up offices or chambers. And this was this was considered to be very threatening to other members of the bar. And I think the Bar Council was very wary 
of allowing that sort of thing to happen. So there's a bit of tension, certainly, like looking through the minutes of the Bar Council, there's certainly tension at different stages. And then when people did at certain points go off on solo runs or where groups of people went off and took offices together, it caused a bit of a little mm. bit of bad feeling at times. But again, I think people got over it. Can I just bring you back to the 1920s? Because one of the things that struck me was the, um, what I think you described as the frosty relationship between the Bar of Ireland and the Bar of Northern Ireland. That basically an exemption was given to Kevin O'Higgins to be called to the Bar without having to sit his exams or without having to attend lectures. And that was just too much for the for the Northern Irish barristers. And basically the barristers north and south went their own way after that. I think you, you, you were really only looking at the 26 counties, weren't you, in, in this book. But were you able to compare it all with, with the practice in the north? Well, to be honest, um, a fantastic book about the 20th century history of the Northern Ireland Bar and in of course, was published by the late Tony Hart and, yeah. and about ten, 10 or so years ago. And that's a really excellent book, not just about the Northern Ireland Bar, but also he goes into a lot of detail about that breakdown between yeah. the two bars and, you know, looks quite closely at the at, at the various incidents, like the granting of exemptions to Kevin O'Higgins and a few other individuals as well. I think there were a few other factors as well. I mean, within a few years of the establishment of the separate states, it was becoming increasingly obvious that there were different legislative regimes yeah. in both jurisdictions, which was a practical barrier for people who wished to practice in both uh, in both yeah. jurisdictions. And in the mid-1920s, Chief Justice Hugh Kennedy was making noises about making the Irish language compulsory for practising at the yeah. bar. And this was something that really didn't go down well with um, with those in the in the six counties. So there were a few factors, I think, that that ultimately led to this like complete and utter breakdown of official relations between the two bars. And it was almost 50 years before there was any coming back together of the of the two bars. In the interim, there were informal get-togethers, the bar golfing societies. Yeah, we, we definitely play golf, all right, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. and, and the Irish Legal History Society. Of these, course. Yeah, very good. Nice to give them a mention. Exactly. <laughs> Neve, you've, you've talked about the fact, and, and you're not really a million miles away, but you've talked about the fact that you were an outsider. You're a legal historian and, and a brilliant legal historian at that. And this meant you had to come within the realm of the bar and you had to spend a lot of time at barristers, 29 people, is that what you said? You interviewed and, you know, so you got up close and personal with a lot of barristers and with the law library and all of that to do with the bar. Two questions. A, did you like your barrister colleagues that you dealt with? Uh, you know, is your fondness from the, for the bar growing? And B, was there anything surprising you learned the closer you got? Mm, good questions. Well, I have to say I really enjoyed speaking to the 29 people who were interviewed. And, you know, they were all very different people. And I had fantastic conversations with all of them. And they were really, really forthcoming and really honest about their experiences, good and bad. And people really opened up about what it was like for them at the bar. So that was very enjoyable. And apart from that, anyone that I've had dealings with from the King's Inns, from the Bar Council, other members of the bar have been extremely helpful and supportive and interested in this project. So that's been a real pleasure, actually. There were very many stories which just could never be put into print into the book, um, which were very entertaining for me, but it's uh, it's a pity that they couldn't go any further. Um, well, you'll have to tell us those <laughs> afterwards. When we're uh, off air. <laughs> can, I, can I just tell, will you tell us about the launch of the book? It's October 12th. Where is it being launched and who's launching it? Uh, so it's going to be launched by um, the Attorney General, Mr. Rossa Fanning, Senior Counsel, 
um, who's also an adjunct professor uh, at UCD Sutherland School of Law. And it's going to be launched in the distillery building on Church Street. Okay, fantastic. Well, look, every success with the book. Uh, As I said, you've brought in the hard copy here today. It looks fantastic. It's a substantial piece of work. It's a hugely substantial piece of work, Mark, isn't it? You were commenting on the footnotes. Extraordinary bibliography. I mean, it goes on for pages. Absolutely (laughs) wonderful. So a lot of work went into it. Can we ask you our final question? Can you recommend any other book? Is there any other book or movie that occurs to you? I don't think I asked you this beforehand. No. But maybe you know from previous shows. Yeah, I should have had this prepared on the spot. I will say that I've very much enjoyed recently a book by Patrick Radden Keefe. Oh, yes. Called Empire of Pain. And it's about the Sackler dynasty. I hope no one else has already recommended this. No, no, not at all. It's a fantastic read, very carefully researched, very carefully put together. Um, he's very open about his, his sources and so on. Uh, Oxycontin. Uh, Oxycontin. Mm. Yeah, sorry. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. And he's writing, He's he's got a law background, but he really gets into the story of the family and the individuals. And it's nearly as good as a, a soap opera in places. The writing mm. is superb. So okay, definitely what a wonderful a read, recommendation. But not a light read. Okay, well, Neve Howland, Associate Professor of Law at UCD. Thank you so much for coming in and being a guest on The Fifth Court. Thank you very much. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. So that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest today, Associate Professor Neve Howland, who has written a brilliant book about barristers in Ireland. The big launch is on the 12th of October, folks. Get to the distillery building on Church Street and it's going to be wonderful. It's a wonderful piece of work, Mark. Really is, isn't it? It is. It's a great book. Yeah, yeah. And loads of research has been put into it and great yarns, though she says some of the better yarns she had to leave out, unfortunately. That was very sad. Anyway, there you go. So before we go, we'd like to say a big thank you to our producer, Conal O'Moroin, and to the Dublin South Studios for their wonderful work in recording this show, in particular, Mr. Lee Brennan. So for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.